Right, as I said, we're going to be looking at the passage today that we studied when we were in, uh, in Denver uh, with the students. So turn in your Bibles, if you have them, to um, Matthew 16. Um, if you're here today and you don't have a Bible and you need one, um, don't hesitate to ask us. We have uh, lots of Bibles that people left in the lost and found. You can take one of those. Um, and uh, we have other Bibles you can have as well. So uh, we all need uh, this today. So Matthew chapter 16. Um, we're looking in Matthew's gospel here, and this is a familiar account that we've studied before. Matter of fact, uh, as we've been walking through the book of Mark, Jay preached on this a little while ago, and it wasn't, um, it wasn't as extensive as this. I think Matthew's given a little bit more detail than Mark did, and so we're going we're gonna to get into that today. We're going to look at this. Um, have you ever heard the word epistemology? Epistemology is the um, study of knowledge, and particularly it's the study, um, its primary concern is how we know what, I'm sorry, the kids, you see how them all leaving? I forgot to dismiss the kids to go to Kids Connection, but they already know. Um, Good job, kids, for going, and we have students back there ready to lead and be a part of that. Um, Yeah, that was my fault. Um, Sorry about that. Epistemology. So the study of knowledge um, and how, and its primary concern is how we know what we know. And so that's what the focus is in that study. And there's four particular ways that, um, that, that people have the source of knowledge. And let me give those to you. And as we move down this list, the first one I'm mentioning, mentioning is the lowest level of certainty and authority. And as we move down, we'll move to a higher level of, or the highest level of, of being certain and having authority. The first one is um, intuition. And so this is our feelings and our senses. The Bible tells us that, um, that, our, that our hearts are wicked and dark and evil and not to trust them. And so we can't always look to our own feelings because they're wishy-washy. We can't always look to our own, uh, to what's inside of us to make sense. That cannot be our source of knowledge. And so that's the first level that people have when they, when they look to their source of knowledge. The second one is reason and observation. This would be our traditions and our experiences. And so when people are looking at uh, where they get their source of knowledge from, a lot of times it's from our tradition or from what we can observe or how we reason together. Uh, the, third, uh, the third level down, and, and as we're moving down, remember we're moving to a higher level of uh, certainty and authority, is empiricism. That is the hard sciences, uh, scientific methods, studying uh, of these kinds of things. And so the more you move down, again, the higher the level of certainty and authority. And the last one where people gain uh, knowledge and how they know what they know is through revelation. And this is, again, uh, I've said this over and over, but this is the most certain and most authoritative way um, that we have knowledge. And it's, it's something that's not discovered by us, by man, but is revealed to them by God. And, and you can really, uh, when you study Revelation, God's revelation to us, you can break it down into two, two categories. You've got general revelation and you've got special revelation. General revelation is God revealing himself to us through things like creation. Um, and, and all of that. And so he, in a general way, God is revealing, here I am, look at me. In a specific way, or in a special way, he's revealing his person and his work and, his, and his, what he's doing, what he's about, his redemptive work in the person and work of Jesus Christ. 
And so Jesus is God's final revelation, as we'll see later on. And it says in Hebrews chapter 1 that Jesus is the final revelation. And so we see who is Jesus through the Scripture. And that's kind of where we're zeroing in and focusing on today. Listen to this history of how people know what they know as it related to these four levels of knowledge. Remember, uh, intuition, reason, and observation empiricism, which is the hard sciences, and then revelation. During the um, patristic age, that's the first uh, few centuries A.D., revelation was seen uh, from a Christian perspective as being the primary means of knowledge. The primary means of knowledge. As the church moved into the the Roman Catholic age, when the church was established as uh, the state and church were one together, tradition was exalted alongside, and even in some instances was exalted even more than revelation. The church claimed to be the sole authority for interpreting Scripture. With the birth of the Reformation, the Protestant, uh, the protest was not only against false doctrines in the church, but also the tendency to raise human interpretation over the clear testimony of Scripture. As this movement progressed, the Reformers somewhat inadvertently, yet effectively, diluted the role of tradition as a pillar of knowledge, leaving only revelation and experience. Within a couple of centuries, the dawn of enlightenment brought about the rise of uh, rationality and the retreat of revelation. No longer was knowledge something that was outside of man, but rather um, subjective truth um, to be pursued from within. So they once were looking outside of themselves to be revealed what is the truth, and now they're turning and starting to be look inward and say, what is the truth for me? Um, it's so weird how that happens. I have a five-year-old, and he said, he was playing. I said, well, that's not real. And he said, well, it is for me. And I was like, we don't even have to teach our kids this, and they've already got it. And so they're understanding this. Um, he said, this is what, and today, this is what we call relativism. And although many of the philosophers of the time were Christians, their emphasis on man's experiences and their feelings effectively neutered the role of revelation. And this is the movement that produced modernism. In the late 20th century, philosophers and theologians began to rethink the Enlightenment project and the role of reason and rationality in the search for truth. And many came to the conclusion that reason and experience were limited in their ability to convey reality. And they abandoned this, uh, this last pillar of knowledge, the pillar of reason and experience. This is generally the environment that we find ourselves today um, with, abs- with no absolutes. All truth is relative. There's no real ground to stand on. I can, uh, I've used this example with the students before. I can tell you today um, that my birthday is January 1st. Nobody would question me. How many of you would question that? Dwayne, <laughs> Gloria Jansen questions that. Uh, yeah. Um, so my birthday is not uh, January 1st, it's August 5th, but I can tell you as much as I want that my, that my birthday is January 1st, but that doesn't make it true. I can't look inside of myself to find truth. You have to go find an external source. And so I would go to my uh, driver's license or to my birth certificate and you would have to say, well, let me look at that. Let me see if that's true. And, and so that's what's, what's happened in our culture and our world today is so often we want to look inward and we say, well, is that true for me? 
is, and, and truth just becomes so relative and not absolute. Um, and this is kind of the, what's being challenged uh, and what I want to point out in this passage. Um, I've been taking a biblical counseling class and um, this semester, and it's talking, and, and one of the main things it says, it says, when you minister to people, and I'm not talking in a formal way, we're talking informally, so this applies to all of us. When you minister to somebody, it's important to know what their source of knowledge is. Where are they getting their information? Because that will inform how they think, what they're saying, what they're doing. And so as, as we look into each other's lives, and as we do community together here, we need to understand what is our source of knowledge. What do we turn to? And, and if we're constantly turning to ourselves and inwardly, we're going to be so wishy-washy back and forth. And so we have to look to something that's outside of us, namely God's Word. Jesus said this, he said in John 5, 39 40, he says, You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you can have eternal life. Just by searching the Scriptures. So what he's saying here is just by knowledge you will have eternal life. But he says, these, meaning the scriptures, they testify about me. And you are unwilling to come to me that you may have eternal life. Studying the scriptures as our authority is not, um, it's like the rich young ruler. Look, I've done all these things since I was young. Can I have eternal life? And Jesus says, no, look at me, come to me, give up everything for me. And that's the, that's the essence of what he's saying. That's why we study scripture. That's why it's our source is because it tells us who Jesus is. And in him is the only way that we can have eternal life. And so our text this morning, um, and as the students learned, we're looking at this passage, um, and, the, and the speaker John Richardson said uh, and highlighted the fact that you can't know who you truly are. You can't find your true identity until you know who Jesus Christ is. And so let's read our passage together. Matthew chapter 16, starting in verse 13 through 20. Matthew, inspired by the Holy Spirit, writes, Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he turned to them and he said, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Thanks be to God for his word. Let's, let's pause for a moment, and let's just ask him to help us as we study it today. Father, we pause here uh, in, in community together. We pause um, as we sit underneath your word. God, your word is supreme and authoritative in our life. We believe it is true. There's no error in it. And God, we want to submit our lives to it. This morning, we come with all kinds of distractions, insisting for our attention. And we ask you, for your divine intervention today. By your Spirit, would you, would you cause us to hear your voice, even through the voice of a mere man, so that by hearing we might believe and obey and live in the light of your truth. We thank you that you have given us the Bible, not simply to increase our knowledge, 
but to change our lives. So please change us for Jesus' sake. Amen. I'm primarily in this passage. What I want to focus on today is verses 13, really through verse 17. But I want to highlight quickly, uh, because DJ did as well, but I want to highlight verse 18 and uh, 19 and 20. 18 says, And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Uh, there is a, this, is a, this has been a complicated verse, I think, throughout the church and um, throughout the, the church history and some, different viewpoints. This is talking about um, when it says, I tell you that you are Peter. So Jesus is saying that you are Peter. And the, the controversy has always become between Peter and rock. They sound the same, or they're um, almost the same kind of word. They mean the same thing. And so it's been interpreted that Peter is the rock, and Peter is the one that's going to be building the church. Um, but what this is testifying to, it says, I will build my church. Christ is going to build the church on what? On Peter's testimony, on his confession of faith. What Peter says, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, that is what is going to storm the gates of hell. That is what's going to build the church. And the keys to the kingdom, when it says it's not given them just to Peter and to the apostles, they're the only ones that have the keys to the kingdom. If you um, believe in the Bible, you've trusted in Jesus, you know the gospel, you too have the keys to the kingdom. How do people get saved? It's through the hearing of God's word. And so as you share that with each other, as you share that with your neighbors, that's how people will be saved. And the gates of hell will not be prevail against it. Um, and then obviously in verse 20, it wasn't time yet for the disciples or for the rest of everybody to know who Christ was. So he charged them not to say anything yet. There will be a day where he says, tell everybody, but it's not this day. And so as we look at this passion, passage, let's go back to the beginning here. Um, and again, like I said, we see this awesome confession of Peter. And, and, P, and in the Greek, what we see, there's only ten words in the Greek. And four of those ten words are the definite article. So this confession isn't just this, mm, you know, uh, you teachers, and have you ever had a student uh, give you an answer, but they weren't quite sure? And you're like, okay, do you really, is that your final answer? You know, this is a definite answer. This is a final answer with authority and with force. And it would read more like this in the, uh, in the Greek text. You are the Christ, the Son of the God, the Holy One. Uh, that point, that's very forceful. You are the Christ, the Son of God, the God, the Living One. And so we understand this this confession here wasn't just Peter's alone. It was he, Peter um, has become a first among many. He has the same authority and the same role as the other um, apostles. And so he's not like, here's Peter and here's everybody else. They're together on this, much like in an eldership. Exactly like in an eldership. Okay, Pastor Jay is uh, the first among many with gifts and talents and the time to come and serve and teach and preach but sitting alongside with the rest of our elders with the same and equal authority in the life of the church. This is what we see here in this group. And so Peter makes this confession for the entire group. Look at verse 13. Jesus says, or or in verse 13 it says that the twelve, Jesus, they're entering into the district of Caesarea, Caesarea Philippi. Caesarea Philippi was about 25 miles north of the Sea of Galilee, about 40 miles southwest of Damascus. 
And while they're on the outskirts of this Greco-Roman city, this city uh, that, was a, that was named after a pagan god, um, and the population was primarily Greek, Jesus asked a question. And like all good teachers, he asks a question that primes the pump. A, pr- a question that gets them to start thinking about the real question that he's about to answer. So he, he's setting them up for something, and he says, Who do people say the Son of Man is? Who do people say the Son of Man is? And now, uh, there's two things that I want to point out in this. You probably already know this, but when it says people, who is he referring to? People there isn't the, Gre- the Greco-Roman people that are there in that city. The, the, what he's referring to is the Jews, his chosen people, God's chosen people uh, to whom the Messiah was first sent. We see that every time Jesus entered a city, every time Paul entered a city, where do they go first? to the synagogue, to the Jewish nation, and then to the Gentiles. And so Jesus is asking his, his disciples, not because Jesus doesn't know. He already knows. And, and teachers and parents, you know this. You ask your kids a question, but you already know the answer to it. But you're drawing them in. You want them to, to, to answer for themselves what is the right answer. And so you use this as a tactic. And Jesus is doing the same thing. Who do people say that I am? Who do people, well, actually, who do people say the Son of Man is? And Jesus loves this term, the Son of Man. I think Jay referred to this and, um, and, and when we were going through the book of Mark. But the Son of Man is the most common designation uh, of himself that Jesus uses for himself. He uses this some 80 times in the New Testament. And so the Jews, when, he, when, when someone would say the Son of Man, they would clearly understand and recognize that this is a title for the Messiah. Going right back to Daniel chapter 7, verse 13. And so they would know that when Jesus is saying, he just as well could have said to the disciples, who do the people say the Messiah is? And that's what he's getting at here. Who do they say the Son of Man is? And, and I like what John MacArthur had to say about why Jesus often refers to himself this way. He says, this is no doubt, this, being this his favorite term, this is no doubt why Jesus preferred it. It's because it focused on his humiliation and his submission, of his, the, the humiliation and submission of his first coming and his work of sacrifice, his substitutionary atonement. This term, Son of Man, focuses on the humanness of Jesus Christ. Everybody know Jesus is 100% God and 100% man. Fully God of fully God. Okay, Fully God, fully man. And he is um, this this phrase, this son of man word, this reference to who he is, is highlighting the fact that he is human. And that's why the, G- the Greeks didn't like to use it. Or not the Greeks, the Jews, they didn't like to use it because they didn't want to focus on God being human. That's what they accused Jesus of. You can't be God. You're the carpenter that grew up down the street from me. And so they didn't like to use that term. And so they, they answer Jesus in verse 14. And they answer with some specific names. Some say John the Baptist. Some say Elijah. Some say Jeremiah. And now they're pulling out these prophets. So basically what they're saying, the Jewish people don't think that you're the long-awaited Messiah. You might be a, a forerunner. You might be somebody who's, who's showing us where he's coming or where he might be, but you're not him. That's what the Jewish people are saying. When by, by answering, some say John the Baptist, Elijah, or Jeremiah. And, and you can go into why he says all that. One of the reasons, Jeremiah, in the, the book of Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament, it says that someone will come in the spirit of Elijah that will turn hearts of fathers and sons together. 
And um, that was an uh, indication. So they thought, well, maybe it's someone coming in the spirit of Elijah. But it wasn't the Messiah. You see, Jesus didn't match up to anyone's messianic expectation. Jesus came to reveal himself as the Messiah, to make known God's saving grace, and to be faithful to his promises, but they, they wouldn't receive him. His own people didn't even know who he was. And to help illustrate that for us, listen, listen to this um, illustration that I found. It says, suppose that you, you, uh, your doorbell rings and you go and you answer it, and you discover that as you open the door, there's a famous person on the other side. Let's say that it's uh, Billy Graham. And you swing the door open wide and you take his coat and you give him your best seat and you serve him from your best china and you generally just make a big fuss about Billy Graham being in your house and, or whoever else the famous person is you have in your mind. Okay, you make a general fuss about that person being in your house and then as the evening progresses you find out that it really isn't Billy Graham at all. How would, how would the guest feel in that moment? All of this attention, all of this focus, what, that wasn't for me? You didn't know who he was. So when they were, so in, in a little bit here in, in the storyline, they're parading, singing Hosanna, and Jesus is coming in, and, and all these miracles and everything that's happening, happening, and they're like, you're fussing over me? But they're not fussing over Jesus. They didn't even know who he was. They didn't see the true identity of Jesus. I wonder, do we today, do we see the true identity of who Jesus is? Are we gazing and are we fixed upon that? So, here you go. Here's the question. He had priming the pump, and now in verse 15, he, he turns to his disciples and he says, He said to them, But who do you say that I am? In a point-blank way, Jesus says, who am I? Do you know me? That's what he's saying. And what Jesus wants to see is if his disciples have arrived at the knowledge of who he is. They have walked with Jesus for two plus years and they were eyewitnesses of his life and his ministry. They saw him uh, heal the sick, raised from the dead. They saw him feed thousands of people with nothing. They saw storms just stop and cease. They saw him teach with authority, and people were amazed. And yet Jesus still asked them, do you really know me? Do you know me? Do you know who I am? And this is such a personal question, isn't it? It's life's ultimate question. Each and every one of us in here today will have to give an account on the day of judgment how we answer this question. What are you going to do with the fact when, when they say, what did you do with my son? Who is Jesus? We're all going to be answer, have to answer that question. And at, corporately, we can answer that question. We say, he's, he's the son of God. He's fully God and fully man. We trust in him. We believe in him. We do that in a corporate way. And, but every, the only reason we can have a corporate confession and believe together this is because each one of you are believing it individually. That's why we stress membership so hard and baptism. And that's why we had all the new members come up here and share their testimony. Because we want to know the best that we can that they are confessing like this. That they believe in Jesus Christ. So that when we gather together, we can corporately say, we trust and believe in Jesus Christ. And we can sing the song that declares, I believe in God the Father. I believe in the Son. 
And we can do these things together because each of us individually have done it. So um, don't forget that. Parents, you can't, you can't cause your students to answer this question rightly. You can't answer it for them. Students, you can't answer this for your parents. I can't answer this for you as a congregation. I know who Jesus is, and I believed, and I've trusted him. And I surely, I want to have a conversation with you and, and share who he is from the word of God. But you have to make that personal acceptance of him. You have to receive him, and you have to be able to answer this question for yourself. Who do you say that Jesus is? Do you know him? Do you know him? It's a very personal question. And in verse 16, we see the best answer that could have been said here. And you got to remember, Peter, he wasn't good at saying the right things. He blurted out stuff all the time, and most of the time it was wrong. Uh, a lot of us in here, myself included, we say things, uh, just the first thing that comes to our mind, and, and, and sometimes it's wrong. But Peter didn't do that this time. He says this, verse 17, or, or sorry, verse 16, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Peter, as I've already mentioned, is declaring Jesus as the Messiah, God's predicted and a long-waited deliverer of Israel, the supreme and anointed one, the coming high priest, king, prophet, and savior. In this crucial statement, what he is saying when he says this, you are the Christ, the Son, you're saying, Jesus, you are no mere man. You are God. You are God, and you've come in the flesh to save people. And that's what Peter is confessing. Do we have that same confession? Now, the disciples, they'll still have doubts. They'll be confused at times, as we see in the Gospels, about who Jesus is and what he said he was, not about who he is, but what he said he was going to do and things like that and what he did. But they will no longer doubt Jesus' true identity. They will no longer doubt that he is who he says he is, that he is the Messiah. They won't be in the camp with the rest of the Jewish people. And this, this question, being so spot on, brings us back to how did Peter know that? Epistemology. How did he know what he knew? How can we confess Jesus Christ? Listen to um, what verse 17 says. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, or son of Jonah, uh, highlighting that you are man here, son of Jonah. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. If I had to give you a thesis statement or a main topic for the message today, it would be this. How is it that a heart is prepared to recognize Jesus so that Christ can be received for who he really is. Remember the illustration of the door. How is a heart? How is your heart ready? How is my heart ready? And if you're, um, if you're, if you're able to do that, I'm not able to do this, think like this. You should be asking yourself the question, how did I receive Christ? What was it? Some of you might say, well, I, uh, I prayed a prayer, or I walked an aisle, or I put my trust in Jesus, or wh- however the verbiage you use and, and say how you came to Christ or, or what happened. The question is, how did you get there? How did you know what you knew? Or what you know. I said that right. How do you know? That's what, he, that's what he's getting at. And so the question that I want to ask us is, is 
is how did your heart get prepared to recognize Jesus for who he really is, his true identity? And Jesus tells us this. He says, it's not by flesh and blood, but it's because my Father has revealed this to you. Or to say it in another way, a positive way, the only way we can recognize and receive Christ for who he really is is if God reveals him to us. You've got to remember that Jesus is here with his 12 disciples, and Judas, his eyes were not open to who Jesus really was. And that was design, and that was a purpose of God, right? God used Judas in a way that we all would be, be highlighted and to know who he is. And that's for God's purposes. We don't question that. He is good and sovereign, and he opens the eyes of whoever he wants to open their eyes. But that's how he does it. The Father must reveal it to us. God has revealed himself in many ways and in different times and places in In creation. He testifies of his power and his divinity. Listen to Romans 1.20. It says, For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. And through acts of nature, tornadoes, those types of things, he evidences both severity and kindness. We see in Matthew 5.45 that he says um, it rains on the just and the unjust. In the Old Testament, he spoke through prophets. And now in this time, he has finally, I love that word, finally and decisively spoken through his son. Listen to what Hebrews 1, 1 through 2 says. It says, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. God has finally, decisively revealed to us who he is through the person and work of Jesus Christ. He is the exact imprint of God the Father. And so the good news that we read in Scripture about the Son, about His true identity being 100% God and 100% man, His purpose and work um, of um, living a perfect and sinless life, dying a death, freely dying a death. He didn't, no one took it from Him. He gave it up freely. A death that He didn't deserve so that He can absorb the wrath of God for us. For all of us who would put our faith in Him. And then He defeated death by raising from the dead. In short, all of God's redemptive work is being contained in the person and work of Jesus Christ and it's being revealed to us in Scripture. This is God's chosen way, everybody. That's why we sit underneath it. That's why we submit to it because it's God's chosen way of revealing Himself to us and who He is. In the Bible, we believe that, it is, that is, it is fully inspired and there is no error in it. And everything in Scripture points to Jesus Christ. And it is only when we interpret Scripture through the lens of Jesus Christ that it can be rightly understood. That we know what it's saying. And so we look to Jesus Christ because God is showing Him to us through His Word. This word, this phrase, flesh and blood, um, it's referring to uh, to. Ordinary humanity, finite, limited, natural, we can't understand. Flesh and blood, 
So when Jesus denies that flesh and blood revealed his true identity to Peter, what he is saying is that mere human power, effort, or will, or the world's best preaching by, the, by itself cannot reveal to you Christ in all his glory. You did not know, um, you, you did not, nor has anyone else in, uh, in and of themselves, in their humanity, opened their own eyes so that they can know the true Christ. Jesus is answering the question of, how do you know me? How do you know what you know? Epistemology. And it's because God has revealed it to you. Guys, you've got to remember that the Bible says in the great, uh, the great hymn, um, I once was blind, but now I see. The Bible characterizes this as dead people before Christ. How can dead people see? They can't. He characterizes this as being blind. How can you see the true beauty of who Christ is and come to understand who he is so you can put your faith in him unless your eyes are opened? You can't. If you trust and believe in Jesus today, it is only because God's sovereign grace to open your eyes so that you may see Jesus Christ. Does that make sense? And it's through the preaching of his word, through the understanding of scripture that we know Christ. Paul teaches in 1 Corinthians 2.14, The natural man does not receive the gifts of the Spirit, for they are folly to him. He is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. It is impossible for you and I to embrace in a believing way Jesus until we understand the reality of who he is and what he has done. It's possible that we have an intellectual grasp of these things, but without God opening our eyes, we will never see Jesus for who He is, for who He is. As we close today, I just want to highlight the fact again that when God revealed who Jesus was to Peter, He didn't come to Peter in a dream or a vision, or He didn't say, Hey, You've been watching my son and looking at him for all this time. Now look over here and I'll, and I'll, I'll reveal to you who he really is. The way God reveals to us who Jesus is, is not by looking outside of Scripture, but looking right at Scripture, looking and fixing our gaze on who Jesus Christ is. And then God opens our eyes. So we're not looking at something different. It's the same thing we've been looking at. The person, the work, the life of Jesus Christ. But when God opens your eyes, you start to see for him, for who he really is. My prayer for us today, if you've never been able to see God, or if you've never been able to see Christ in that way, if you're focusing on the intellectual and the things um, that maybe we could do, I pray that God will open your eyes and that you would just fix your gaze on Jesus. Like, how do I fix my gaze on Jesus? You look in his word. You look in God's word. Because that's the, the person and work of Jesus. And he highlights his son. God loves to glorify his son. He loves to point fingers at his son and say, look at him. And he wants us to gaze on him too. Let's do that. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this gathering. Thank you for this time that we could be here uh, to sit in your word. Lord, um, we confess along with Peter and uh, many others, God, that you, that Jesus, you, that you are the Christ. You are the Messiah. You are the one that takes away the sins of the world. 
We put our hope, we put our trust in you. We love you. We would trade everything in this world, as the song said, for you. You are life's ultimate treasure. Help fix our gaze. God, we need you to to help us as we look into the life and work of Jesus so that we can be sure and confident in who you are. That we can hold on fast to our original confession. Would you help us in that? God, if there's someone here today that has never put their trust in you, would you draw them to you? God, would you be so merciful and gracious as to open their eyes so that they can see Jesus for all he is? and put their trust in Him. We pray in Your name. Amen.